0: Now, stay standing. We'll go ahead and read our text for the day while you're up. That way, you don't have to do the stand-up, sit-down thing anymore. All right, so let's stand out of respect for reading God's Word, and let's read Nehemiah 13. That will be our text for the day. If you want to follow along, uh, I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Okay, yeah, we'll explain that later. Anyway, all right, Christian Standard Bible is what I'm reading out of. Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning of verse 1 says, At that time, the book of Moses was read publicly to the people. The command was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the Israelites with food and water. Instead, they hired Balaam against them to curse them. But our God turned the curse into a blessing. When they heard the law, they separated all those of mixed descent from Israel. Now before this, the priest Eliashib had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. He was a relative of Tobiah and had prepared a large room for him where they had previously stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, and the tents of grain, new wine, and fresh oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, along with the contributions for the priests. While all this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king for a leave of absence so I could return to Jerusalem. Then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the courts of God's house. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I ordered that the rooms be purified, and I had the articles of the house of God restored there, along with the grain offerings and frankincense. I also found out that because the portions for the Levites had not been given, each of the Levites and the singers performing the service had gone back to his own field. Therefore, I rebuked the officials, asking, Why has the house of God been neglected? I gathered the Levites and the singers together and stationed them at their posts. Then all Judah brought a tenth of the grain, new wine, and fresh oil into the storehouses. I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses the priest uh, Shelemiah, the scribe Zadok, and Padiah of the Levites, and Hanan of Zaker, son of Mataniah, to assist them, because they were considered trustworthy. They were responsible for the distribution to their colleagues." Remember me for this, my God, and don't erase the deeds of faithful love I have done for the house of my God and for its services. At that time, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in stores of grain and loading them on donkeys, along with wine, grapes, and figs. All kinds of goods were being bought or brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I warned them against selling food on that day. The Tyrians living there were in. "...importing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same so that our God brought all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you are rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath." When the shadows began to fall on the city gates of Jerusalem just before the Sabbath, I gave orders that the city gates be closed and not opened until after the Sabbath. I posted some of my men at the gates so that no goods could enter during the Sabbath day. Once or twice the merchants and those who sell all kinds of goods camped out outside of Jerusalem. But I warned them, why are you camping in front of the wall? If you do it again, I'll use force against you. After that, they did not come again on the Sabbath. Then I instructed the Levites to purify themselves and guard the city gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and look on me with compassion according to the abundance of your faithful love. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. I rebuked them, cursed them, beat some of their men, and pulled out their hair. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, You must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or yourselves. Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in a manner like in matters like this? There was not a king like him among many nations. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Yet foreign women drew him into sin. Why then should we hear about you doing all this terrible evil and acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of the high priest Eliashib, had become a son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, for defiling the priesthood as well as the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So I purified them from everything foreign and assigned specific duties to each of the priests and Levites. I also arrange for the donation of wood at the appointed times and for the firstfruits. Remember me, my God, with favor. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this time, um, as we come around your word, Lord, I, I pray that you would open our eyes, uh, that you would help us to see how to live in response to your word, um, Lord, I don't want to just go through this, this next little bit and walk away unchanged, but instead, Lord, I pray that you would come, that you would change us, that you would make us into the people that you would want us to be, and teach us how to be more faithful followers of Jesus. So, Lord, help us as we go through this time, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week, last week, we just saw this grand celebration, right? This grand celebration. If it, if for those of you who weren't here or haven't heard what, what we talked about last week, um, in chapters 11 and 12, there's this, this giant get-together, this giant party that they, they have to, uh, to dedicate the walls that they've just built around Jerusalem. And they come up and they have multitudes marching around these walls and they see the work that's been done, this completed work, and they celebrate God's use of them. Like, God has used them in an unbelievable way. They restored these walls in less than two months, and now they're up here marching around these walls and their enemies were saying, yeah, right, a fox couldn't climb up this thing or else those walls are going to collapse. And now there's people marching around the tops of these walls. So they get together, and they're celebrating what God has done through them. They're having a wonderful time. So that means that everything from here on is good, right? No? Huh. Well... They should be. I mean, they've done all the right things, haven't they? They've done what they were supposed to. They built the walls. They plan to repopulate the city. They plan for continuing the work at the temple. They've done all the right things, haven't they? So everything should be good at this point. (laughs) There's one problem, though. Um, People are involved. (laughs) Yeah, so naturally, there's issues that arise. Um, And I I I would argue that the biggest reason that these issues arise, is because people, in general, are naturally forgetful. I think we are naturally forgetful. Now, I would argue that I'm worse than most of you. Um, Just so you know, my memory's awful. Like, my parents, I don't know how many times I got in trouble as a kid, and my response was always the same. Why in the world did you do this? Why didn't you do your homework? Why didn't you pick this up? I forgot. Um, And it wasn't that I was just saying that to get out of it. I really forgot. Like, I just really didn't remember it. Um, and now I'm married, and my wife's like, Jared, how come you didn't plan plan right? Well, I forgot, is the simplest answer. See, that's the problem. People are naturally forgetful. All of us are. We are naturally forgetful. We forget the things that God has done in the past, which means that there are going to be ongoing problems that need to be resolved. And we see that here. See, Nehemiah, at this point, he he goes back back to the king. He goes back to serving the king in the king's court for a time. Now, he's been here in Jerusalem for about 12 years. For about 12 years. Because he comes in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. We're going to find out that he leaves Jerusalem in the 32nd year. So about 12 years he's gone. But after some time being back in the king's courts, he decides he needs to come back. He asks for a leave of absence and he comes back to Jerusalem to find these ongoing issues. Why? Because the people are forgetful. That's why I told you, I even said just a little bit ago, one of the things that God seems to be reminding me again and again is that we need to remember. This word remember all throughout the Bible is a big word. We need to remember what God has done. Like we need to think about what God has done all throughout history and in our own lives. How do we know God's going to be faithful? He's been faithful before. Again and again, we need to remember. So... It's an important word, and we are forgetful people. But there's another important word that comes up three times in chapter 13. And this is going to kind of outline the text for us, this, this important word. There's, there's this fun Hebrew word, um, and if we go ahead and put that up there. It shows up three times in chapter 13. Um, uh, here we go. All right. This word right here, teher. Okay? Teher is this word. Everybody say teher. All right, this means to cleanse or to purify, to purge of ritual impurities. All right, that's what this word indicates, okay? And this is a very important word here, and we're going to see it come up several times throughout this text, and it's going to outline our text for us, all right? So we're going to see this again and again and again. And these three, these three times, they kind of set the stage. The first three verses of the chapter, they set the stage for what's going on in the rest of the chapter as Nehemiah begins to purify everything. We see this purification go on. In these first three verses of this chapter, we see Nehemiah comes back. They're reading from the law. They realize we have fallen away from what God has wanted us to do. So we're reading the book of the law, and we need to turn. We need to change. And that's what we see happen. So they hear the word of God, and they repent. And I think what happens here is we find these three areas that we really need to purify if we're going to continue the work of building people. Because if you remember, the first half of this book of Nehemiah, we see the people very focused on building walls. But God's purpose all throughout the book is to build people, to build a people for himself. And in the second half, we really see that come alive. And this is something that we have to continually purify, things that we have to continually see purified if we're going to be successful in our task of building people. All right? I do. I want to see people built up. And that's part of our mission here at Christian Fellowship. Like, we want to see people become mature followers of Christ. We want to see converts made, absolutely. But from there, we don't want you just to stay baby Christians. We want you to grow in maturity as a Christian. We want you to grow in maturity. So how do we do that? How do we continually build people? Well, three areas that we need to purify if we're going to see this happen. First, we need to purify. We must purify our hearts. Our hearts need to be purified. And I think we see this play out in a couple of ways. Um, And I'll elaborate on this just a little bit more here in a while. So just stay with me for now. Okay, but first, first way we see this play out is because in our lives, as we purify, as our hearts are purified, we need to create space for God. And we see that play out here in the text. Verse four, um, we find that now before this, before Nehemiah returns, the priest Eliashib had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. Okay, Eliashib is in charge of the storerooms. That's his responsibility. Now, the storerooms are a part of what building? Not a rhetorical question. Anybody know? The temple. The temple. The storerooms are a part of the temple, okay? Now, it's probably important to note what the temple represents to these people. The temple represents God's power and his presence in the midst of his people, okay? God's power, his presence physically there amongst his people. That's what the temple, that's what it represents, okay? So, Eliashib, who has oversight of these storerooms, we see that they're supposed to be used to store grain offerings, frankincense, articles for worship, tithes of the people. And all of these items are necessary for the worship of God. They were necessary for their worship at the temple, okay? And they weren't available because the people, leaders included, had neglected them, right? They had been neglected in one way or another. Part of that is because Eliashib decided, you know what, let's clear out this storeroom so that my my brother-in-law, so that Tobiah, can come live here. He needs a place to stay let's just we got all these rooms in the temple let's just clear out a little bit of this space for this guy who's not supposed to be here that's a, I mean it's just a small space right It's just one storeroom we've got another one down the hall let's just go ahead so I started thinking like what's a good parallel to this for today for this space for today um, and the first thing that comes to mind for for many of us I think would probably be church building I mean, I get it. We start thinking about storerooms, the house of God. We start thinking about the church building. And that's, okay, fine. Um, I don't know that that's the greatest analogy, but we could use this as an example. It's not a one-to-one equivalent, but we should try to keep our building, this facility, used as a place for worshiping our God. That should be our goal. This place should be used for the worship of our God. That's not necessarily wrong. But I would argue that a better parallel for today, um, if we're talking about space for worship, it's our heart and our lives, That's the space for worship. It's not a physical space, no, but it is a space that's intended to be for worship. The way that we live our lives is our space for worship. And I mentioned this last week, but Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, he says, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. This is your true worship. So, according to this verse, what is our space for worship? It's our lives. Our lives are supposed to be devoted. Our bodies are to be devoted to God as living sacrifices. This is our space for worship, not just physical space, but our lives are to be our space of worship. That's your sphere of worship. Not just the way you show what not just what you do whenever you show up on a Sunday morning and you come in this room and you're like, "Okay, yep, yeah, this is our space of worship." Oh no, it's your life. It's the way you love your wife, the way, you, the way you respect your husband, it's the way that you treat your kids, it's the way you go about your job. That is your space for worship. So how do you use that? See, what we need to do is we need to, we need to do whatever we can to purify our lives as a space for worshiping God. So we see it play out there, okay? So our hearts need to be pure so that we have the space for worship, okay? Our, our space, our lives for, as worship. Second way we play this out is, is money, okay, is with their money, right? And now this isn't just a pragmatic or a functional issue. This is really a heart issue. The way we deal with our finances is a heart issue. Um, Just in my own devotional time, I've been reading through Matthew. Um, And this week I was reading Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. And it says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And there's two ways to look at this. Um, One, you could look at this and say, okay, so where my treasure is, that's where my heart is. So it's a gauge of where my heart is. And that's fair. That's fair. If you go look at your bank ledger and you say, okay, where am I spending my money? That's going to be a pretty good reflection of where your heart is. That's true. But another way of looking at this is your heart will follow your money. Did you know that? Once you've invested in something, your heart will follow that. Your heart will absolutely follow that. So you can look at this on the flip side. You want your heart to go somewhere? Put your resources there. I absolutely believe that that's true. Your heart will follow your money in one way or another. And we see that play out here because in verse 10, he says, I've also found out that because the portions for the Levites had not been given, each of the Levites and the singers performing the service had gone back to his own field. The work of the temple had to stop because people had decided our hearts are someplace else and they weren't giving their resources. And it inhibited the work of God in these people. Now, does that mean that God needs your money? No, I don't know if you know this, but God spoke the universe into existence. I don't think he needs your hundred dollar bills. (laughs) Uh, So let's not be too prideful. Um, But at the same time, God has chosen to use his people and and the giving of their resources to carry on the work that he's doing in the world. So do I think that's important? Yeah. And just last week, we talked about the joy that comes from being used by God. And now these people, these people who were no longer giving of their resources, giving of their time, giving of their space, these people were missing out on that blessing. And what's maybe even more important is that those who had been called to a unique service, they were unable to serve as God had called them. They were unable to. These Levites and these and the singers, what did they have to do? They had to leave their post and go back to their fields. They had to eat, didn't they? Like, were they supposed to just continue until they starved? No, of course not. They did what they could, but see, let's just draw this parallel to us. Whenever we fail in the giving of our resources, now I know it's a very personal matter what you give, and I know I've talked about money a lot lately. Okay, whatever. I've I've told you I will talk about money as the text talks about money, and it talks about it today, so I'm going to talk about it too. So, all right. If we fail to give of our resources, did you know that that's not just going going to affect you spiritually? It's much bigger than that. Y'all, we've talked about the mission, the mission opportunities that we support, like the mission outlets that we support. If we fail to support them, then they have a difficult time going and doing what God has called them to do. Y'all, why do we need to give of our resources? Well, because whenever you give of your resources, hopefully that helps the gospel go to places it hasn't gone before. We see hearts and lives change because people are able to give of their resources, and that allows these people who have a special calling from God to go and do what God's called them to do. So, While it is a personal issue and it will affect you personally, it's much bigger than that. Seems like there's a slide in there that says it's not all about you. You don't have to put it up there, though. It's not all about you. Like it's much bigger than that. See, our failure to protect the space and the resources would affect worship of others. So Nehemiah comes in and he purified the space. He teared the space. All right, and we see that happen here. He he purifies it. But notice, as he begins this purification process, he he starts with this rebuke. Now, who does he rebuke? It says the officials. He comes and he rebukes the leaders. And what we're going to see in each of these three areas is that that's where Nehemiah begins. So for those of you who see yourselves, or even if you don't see yourself as a leader, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say this. If you're an elder in the church, it starts with you. If you're a board member in this church, you have added responsibility. Husbands, you're called to lead your families. You have responsibility. It's a lot of responsibility. Now, does that mean that not all of us have responsibility? Of course not. If I didn't name something that's like, oh, well, that's me. It's not like, oh, I'm off the hook. I'm clear. You know what? I'm all good. No, you have responsibilities in this also. But what Nehemiah has identified is it starts with the leaders. Because let's just say that a leader is failing to show that his life, to live his life as a living sacrifice. Or if the leaders in the church are unwilling to give of their time and their energy and their resources. Why would we expect anybody else to? I mean, really. If the leaders aren't willing to do it, is anybody? Well, maybe. But I wouldn't count on it. That's part of leading. So, leaders need to lead. And that's where Nehemiah begins. Verse 11. Verse 11 here. He says, Therefore I rebuke the officials asking... Why has the house of God been neglected? Essentially what he says is why why is the thing that should be of the highest importance, why has it become an afterthought to you? Like the worship of our God should be of the highest importance to you. Why are you neglecting it? Why is that a secondary issue to you? But then he doesn't just complain. You all know we're really good at identifying problems. And we can complain about those problems. The issue we oftentimes have is coming up with a solution. See, Nehemiah identifies the problem, then he takes steps to fix it. The last part of verse 11, he says, I gathered the Levites and singers together and stationed them at their posts. Literally what the, what the Hebrew says here is whenever he gathers, gathers these Levites and these singers, he says, I put them in their place. Y'all ever, y'all ever been put in your place? <laughs> that might have a different meaning to us today. Uh, but still, he comes in and he puts them at their posts. He puts them where they belong, where they're supposed to be. And then the people, they bring their tithe, and since Eliashib had failed to be trustworthy, Nehemiah places these other four people in charge of the storerooms. And part of of purifying these storerooms meant that he had to get rid of the problem. Notice that Tobiah was thrown out. And I love this picture because he says, and I threw his stuff out too. Yeah, he didn't just come in and like, Tobiah, you, you you really ought to move, like we'll give you a little bit of time. No, he says, get out and get out now. And then he takes all of his clothes, all of his belongings, and throws them out on the yard. Like, I I love this picture, because he just goes in and he says, no, we're done messing with this. This is wrong. This is sinful. He says, this is evil. And he goes in and he gets rid of the evil. I absolutely love how he's just bold about that. But then he places these other four, removes Eliashib from that post, and he places these other four men in charge of the storerooms. Now, why these four men, though? Why were these men placed in charge of these storerooms? Well, the text doesn't say it's because they were MIT of Jerusalem grads. Um, It doesn't say it was because they were accomplished businessmen or accountants. It says very simply, it says very simply, it's because, the last part of verse 13, because they were considered trustworthy. They were responsible for the distribution of their colleagues. All right, I've said this before, and I'm probably going to say it again. Um, But the truth is, character is a greater qualification than your skill ever will be. Your character is going to be a greater qualification for service to God than your abilities ever will be. And that's what we see happen here. These men, it says nothing about their, their accomplishments, nothing about their qualifications. It simply says they were trustworthy. They were trustworthy. So they were put in charge. They were tasked with overseeing the storehouses. And then Nehemiah closes out this section in verse 14 where we see him purifying the people's hearts, their worship. And he says, remember for me for this, my God, and don't erase the deeds of faithful love that I have done for the house of my God and for his services. He says, remember me. Again, remember, God, remember me for my faithful love. Um, that's what it says in the Christian Standard. If you're an NIV reader, it says, for what I have faithfully done. And I think this word is good, okay? Um, it literally, it's, it's this Hebrew word hesed, and it means, remember me for my loyalty, for, for my faithfulness. Remember me for being faithful to you, my God. That's what he's saying. And Nehemiah here urged the people to be purified, then he asked God to remember that faithfulness. And if we want to continue to build people as a church, according to the book, we must do so as we continually pursue purity in our hearts, our lives. And that'll be reflected as we give God our space and we give God our resources. And our prayer must be what Psalm 51.10 says, it's Create in me a pure heart, O God, and I renew a steadfast spirit within me. That should be our prayer. Creating me a pure heart. So, first, if we want to build people, we must purify our hearts. Second, we must purify our calendar. We must purify our calendar. Okay, verse 15 starts out by showing that the people were working when they should be worshiping, right? They were working when they should be worshiping. Verse 15 says, at that time I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was a day of rest and worship, right? meant you're not supposed to go to work. Now, I'm going to do my best to tread lightly here um, because... There are some people who wind up working on Sundays, and I know that it's not a direct one-for-one correlation, Sunday, Sabbath, okay. Uh, So I'm not going to, I don't want to come across legalistic or try to pile up shame on you if you miss a Sunday service. That's not my intention, because I know that sometimes, and I, I mean just sometimes, there are extenuating circumstances, but more often than not, I think we need to purify our calendars and ensure that nothing infringes on those times that we have set aside for special times of worship. We need to purify our calendars, like emphasize what's most important. And I think that includes Sunday mornings. Now, y'all are here. Okay. Yeah, it's like literally preaching to the choir, isn't that? I mean, like, y'all need to make sure you're here on a Sunday morning. Hey, look here, you're here. All right, great. All right, fantastic. Uh, So I know that that's, that's true, okay? It includes Sunday mornings. But I think it extends beyond that to times of prayer and of Bible study I think it extends beyond that. Are you pure, like, are you protecting your calendar? Are you setting your calendar up in such a way that it reflects that God, loving your God, serving your God is the most important thing to you? That's my question. Now, I'm going to use Sunday morning as an example because it's kind of the low-hanging fruit. Um, but don't forget that this applies to a broader range than just Sunday mornings. Okay, I'm talking about specific times that should be set aside for worship. All right, generally speaking, though, If you have allowed work, and by work I mean your job, like your actual job, but I'm also talking about housework involved here. If you have allowed those things to take precedence over the gathering of the body, I will generally say that's a sin. It is. We're told not to forsake the gathering. We shouldn't give it up. And if we've allowed our jobs or housework or whatever else it is that we need to get done, this work stuff that has to get done if we're allowing that to come in and crowd out the time that we're supposed to set aside for worship, that sounds like a sin. Like, that's what I I see. Now listen, our live stream is great. Our live stream is great. Like, I talk about these guys often enough, but but aren't they pretty? I mean, look at those guys in the sound booth. Those are some attractive dudes back there. I mean, we should put them up here and I'll preach from the back and y'all would be happy people. Um, But, Here's the thing, they do a great job and our live stream is fantastic. But I don't want you to make any mistake, our live stream is no substitute for the physical gathering of the people. It is no substitute. Now, I'm going to do something weird for just a minute, I want to talk to the people to watch online for just a second, okay? So y'all in the room, don't check out on me, but specifically for those of you who watch online. Like, I want you to continue to tune in, but don't neglect the gathering of the body. Like, there's no substitute for gathering together with the body. Now, I know that there are all kinds of crazy circumstances, and I'm so thankful that whenever somebody does have to miss a Sunday, they're still able to stay connected with us. That's fantastic. But this is no substitute for gathering physically with the body. Okay? Now, the reason I want to be careful is because, again, I don't want to get in this outlook that says, you know, what's us create or oh, Wow, that almost said a bad word. Creates guilt and shame. Put those together and it comes out shilt. Did you all know that? Wow. Um, Guilt and shame. I don't want to start piling that up on everybody. That's not my intention. That is not my goal. But what I do think is clear is that Jesus teaches that the Sabbath, like he talks about the Sabbath. And he actually says that the Sabbath isn't created, or man wasn't created for the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath was created for men. We need those times that are devoted to rest and to worship. We need those Did you know that? That's why he gave us the Sabbath. It's because we need those days of rest and those days of worship. So let's use them for what they're intended for. And if we don't have those, it's to our own detriment. You realize that, right? If we give that up, we're hurting ourselves. Like, that's bad for us. And he makes it very clear that the gathering of the body is significant. The question I want to ask is, will your calendar show that it is? Those times that you set aside specifically for worship, those are important. Will your calendar reflect that? So we see people, they were working when they should be worshiping. Then we see that they were buying and selling when they should be worshiping, right? They're buying and selling. Now this is part of the oath that they took earlier on. Chapter 10, verse 31. If you go back just a few chapters, it says, When the surrounding peoples bring merchandise or any kind of grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or holy day. These people just three chapters ago, now I understand it's been like 12 years, but still, three chapters ago promised that they were not going to buy or sell on the Sabbath day. Or on a holy day, right? That's, that's what that says. So not only were they working, but now they were also turning the Sabbath day into a shopping day. Y'all haven't ever done that, have you? They're like, I'm going to skip church and I'm going to go shopping. Now all the guys are like, I don't shop. I'm too manly for that. Don't lie to me. You all love shopping. I know you do. That's a joke. I hope you all got that. But anyway, so they turn the Sabbath day into a day that just, well, it's another day for progress. It's another day we can get something done. The point is that the Sabbath day is supposed to be a day of rest and worship, and they've taken it and made it a day for trade. See, and this failure to protect or to purify their calendars was really symptomatic of a lack of devotion to their God. It was a symptom that they weren't really devoted to their God. So look at Nehemiah's response here. Verse 17, he says, I rebuked the nobles. And again, he's starting with the leaders. So I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Now, I think this is important to, to, to recognize here. He doesn't say, well, yeah, I mean, you guys kind of, you, you made a little bit of a mistake. It's okay, though. You know, you were just misinformed. I know it's really tempting. It's hard. He doesn't do that, does he? He's pretty straightforward here. He says, your misplaced priorities are evil. Y'all, that, that doesn't feel good. Your misplaced priorities, they are evil. We don't like to think in those terms. We like to justify the sin or make it seem like it's just, well, it's really not that big of a deal. You know, it's not like I hurt anybody, right? It's not that big of a deal. Nehemiah steps in and says, that's evil. And then Nehemiah points them backward. He says, remember that our ancestors did the exact same thing. And you remember how well it went for them. That's kind of how we got into this mess in the first place. Because they misplaced their priorities. Y'all ever heard that saying, those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it? I tried to find out who said that first. And I found about three different answers to who that was cited to. So I'm going to take full credit for it this morning. That is my saying, you can't have it. That's a joke. Um, Nehemiah is telling them, This has happened before, and you are on a path to disaster, both you individually and you as a city. So, what does Nehemiah do? Again, he's identified this problem, right? So, he's like, Okay, well, it's a problem, so let's just move on. No, of course not. He takes steps. Nehemiah places guards, he says he places some of his own men. He goes back to what we talked about just a few weeks ago. We talked about placing guards. This was when they were building the walls, so maybe a couple months ago at this point. They were building the walls, and at the low spots in the wall, he comes in and he places guards at the low spots so the city will still be protected, right? What we need to identify is those weak places in our own lives. If we're tempted to go over here and you know do this on a day that's supposed to be set aside for something else, place a guard there. Now, what does that look like practically? Well, I thought about this. If you're a person who has a hard time getting out of bed on a Sunday morning because you know that this time you want to set this side of time as a time of worship and, uh, with the body, well, you know what? Maybe for you it's I need to set an alarm a little bit earlier. Maybe I need to set two or three so I can actually get my backside out of bed. Uh, maybe that's what you need to do. Or maybe it's, you know what, maybe I need to tell Jared, hey, could you send me a text on a Sunday morning just to keep me accountable? And you know what? I come in on a Sunday morning. And I've got, I've got a few things I've got to get ready, sure. But then I spend some time standing back there about where, about where Ben's standing right now, and I talk to those guys in the sound booth. And I love talking to my brothers. It's a great time. But I promise you, they will understand whenever I say, hey, just a minute, I've got to send a text to my other brothers, so that way they make sure that they're here on a Sunday morning. They'll get it. Okay? So maybe you need to place a guard to protect your calendar. I remember at one point I set an alarm on my phone, and it was basically—it uh, wasn't very nice to me. It told me every morning I needed to get, my, basically, get my backside in gear, um, and I needed to get up, and I needed to read my Bible. Um, I actually think I called myself a bad name with it too, so yeah, think what you want. But anyway, um, so I had to do that. I had to set that alarm. I had to post a guard in my calendar to make sure that I did what I said I was going to do, that I was committed to my God. I don't know what that looks like for y'all, but I promise you, if you don't place a guard, you're going to drift. And you're going to be drawn by that temptation. You know what? Yeah, i got these other things that need to get done first. I'll I'll get to that eventually. It'll happen sooner or later. Place guards. Place guards. There are too many scenarios, so I'm going to move on. So finally... Finally, he again he warns the merchants with, and this time he does it with a thread of verse. And then in verse twenty-two it says, "I instructed the Levites to purify, to hair themselves, and to guard the city gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy." And again he asks God to remember him, but this time he does something different. Last time he says, "God remember me according to my faithfulness." This time he says, he says he asked for God to remember him according to God's hesed, according to God's faithful love or his loving kindness, or his great love. So God, not only remember me for my loyalty to you, but God, remember your loyalty to me. God, according to your faithful love, according to your faithfulness. So if we're going to continue to build people, we must purify our hearts, purify our calendars, and third, we must purify our homes. Um, Y'all, this is kind of a sticking point for me. Um, So if I get a little carried away, you can deal with it. So verse 23 he says, in those days I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. In other words, these men had intermarried with the foreign wives that they were commanded not to marry. And that they vowed that they wouldn't, right? Again, this is new. This is not something new, excuse me. Chapter 10, verse 30. They promised in this oath, they said, we will not give our daughters and marriage to the surrounding peoples and will not take their daughters as wives for our sons. Basically, everything in that paragraph from Nehemiah chapter 10, it's out the window now. Like, you know what? Yeah, we promised, but it's been a while, so you know what? We're just going to ignore that. We're going to do what we want anyway. So they do. They leave it behind, and they move forward. But see, here's the thing. It didn't just hurt these people who took the foreign wives or gave their daughters to foreign husbands. It wasn't just their problem, was it? Instead, we see it affect the next generation. I mean, really, look at what it says. Look at what it says says in verse 24. They were directly impacted. It says, half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. Now, I'm going to explain to you why this is such a big deal. Hopefully, I can do this well. Um, Just a quick fun fact, though. A child, did you know that a child is more likely to learn to speak from their mother? A child is more likely to learn to speak from their mother, who they spend more time with as an infant, as as a young child. So, language skills... Those usually come from the mother. Um, so what we find here is these, these men are marrying foreign wives, and it means that they're, half their children, they can't even speak the right language. They're speaking in other languages. Okay? And if their children don't know the language, then how are they going to be able to learn to read the law or be a part of the services where they speak Hebrew? How are they going to be able to do that? Essentially, these children, they're going to be set back in their ability to know God. Not of any fault of their own. Now, I want to urge you to make your home, your home, a place where you speak of godly things, where you teach your children the language of the Bible. And I'm not talking about teaching your children Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek. I'm going to brag on my daughter. I taught her the Greek alphabet. I think it's hilarious to hear her sing the Greek alphabet. You know, she's known that since she was like five. So um, it's fantastic. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about literally teaching your children Hebrew and Greek. That's not what I'm getting at. I want you to teach your children the language of the Bible. I want you to teach them. Like, I want them to be Bible literate. Like, I want them to know what the Bible says. That's what I want for my kids. That's what I want for your kids. Because if you're not teaching them the Bible, nobody's going to. They might come to church and you're thinking, well, they'll go to Sunday school and they'll go to church. So they'll get a couple hours of it every Sunday. Okay, fantastic. That's great. And I'm so thankful that your children will get a couple hours of it. But I'm going to be honest with you. They get two hours of that and they get hundreds of hours of other things. What's going to impact them the most? Teach your children, teach your grandchildren the language of the Bible. Teach them God's word. But you ask, okay, in this particular time, they speak a different language. Is it really that big of a deal? Is it really that big of a deal? Well, I'm not going to answer that question directly. Instead, I'm going to show you Nehemiah's response, and I'm going to let you decide if you think it's a big deal. All right, so you can use your own judgment here. Because Nehemiah's response... It's really good. Verse 25, he says, I rebuked them, which can literally mean to bring a a legal suit against them. So he says, I rebuked them. I cursed them. I beat some of their men. If you read the King James, it says, I smote some of their men. Um, That just has that extra little thrust to it. Like, I smote some of their men. um, And I pulled out their hair. Y'all, this is, that's bold. Like, this guy's coming out and he says, you're not raising your family. They don't even speak the right language. And he comes out and he beats some of them. I really wanted to do this crazy thing where I threatened to beat you, but I'm not a very big guy, and some of you would hurt me. Um, so I'm not going to go there, not to mention it would be inappropriate, and I'm really not a violent person. Um, although i got three brothers, and I remember wrestling some of them, and sometimes you cheat and you pull hairs, so you never know. So we see this happen. We see this happen here. But what I'm, So while I may not threaten violence against you, what I will tell you is that if you're not striving to be a man of the book, specifically fathers, if you're not striving to be a man of the book, then you are failing the next generation. You are failing the next generation. Your children, your grandchildren. Look, I know I've said this before, again, and I will say it again and again and again. Parents, mothers, fathers, grandparents, Your job, your primary job, is not for your children to get a good education, to get a good job, to be successful, to have the dream marriage, to have the nice car and a beautiful home. That's not your primary job. Your first job is to teach your children who Jesus is and what he's done for them. Your number one goal should not be for your children to be successful according to the world standards. Your number one goal is for your children to be godly children. That's your job. I, I, I think it's pretty clear. Like, look, I love my kids. I love, you all know I've got three kids. I talk about them all the time. Four are on the, fourth on the way. Like, I'm, I'm so excited. I love being a dad. It's one of my favorite things in the world. Um, but I'm just gonna be honest with you. As much as I want my kids to be successful, as much as I pray for the man that's gonna marry my daughter, as much as I pray for the woman that's someday gonna marry my sons, as much as I pray for that, and I want that. As much as I want my kids to get a good job and be successful, as much as I want that, that's nothing compared to how bad I want them to know Jesus. Like, if they decide that they want to be missionaries and they're going to be poor their whole lives and they decide they're going to stay unmarried the rest of their lives, if, they follow, if they're following Jesus, I don't really care. Like, I want my kids to be people who want God, who want Jesus in their lives. And that's, that's, my, primary, that's my primary goal. And if that's not yours, then it's not a biblical goal. You can want good things outside of that for your kids, but if that's not first, it's not right. That's what these people are missing. That's what they're missing. So please, don't make me round up a couple guys and come beat you. Um, Nehemiah, he provides a historical example of this. And again, I promise you, I'm not a violent person. I love you all, and let's just go with that. So anyway... Nehemiah, then he provides this historical example. We actually talked about this a couple weeks ago. He says, he says, know your history. The same thing happened to Solomon, right? He was one of the wisest men ever to live. He was a great king. God loved Solomon. He was following after him, but he was led astray by foreign wives. And you know what wound up happening to Solomon's kingdom? It was split. It was divided. God took it away from him. He took it away. All because he was led astray by foreign wives. And he uses that as an example. And just so you know, this is something that everybody needs to do. Everybody needs to do. Not not just, not just the average person, but church leaders, again, are included. Okay, This didn't just affect the average person. It was especially important of leaders who also failed. Because you remember Eliashib, he failed to keep his home pure. He failed in this respect. And it wound up hurting everybody around him. Because then the people weren't able to worship as they were supposed to. So again, verse 30, Nehemiah, he purified, he tehered them from everything foreign, and he set things right. And he closes this letter with one more request for God to remember him, and I love the last part of verse 31. Uh, Just look at that with me. He says very simply, remember me, my God, with favor. Remember me, my God, with favor. So if we're going to continue the work of building people, we must purify our hearts, our calendars, and our homes. So what? Well... Um I want this church, I want Christian fellowship to be faithful with what god 's called us to I, I want I want us to be faithful with what god 's called us to um, and i 've said this a number of times, but what do we want to do as a church? We want to be a body of believers who proclaim Christ, empowering all people to become mature followers of Christ by the wisdom of the scriptures and the power of the holy Spirit that 's what we want to be as a church. We want to proclaim Christ and we want to see people built up in Christ just like just like God did here in Nehemiah. We want to see a people built. And we got off to a good start. Y'all, we're doing good. We're doing good. And you think things are going smooth. All right, let's relax now. That's a bad idea because when you relax, you forget. You forget. I don't want to be a forgetful people. Instead, we need to continue to drive forward to see our hearts purified. And how, how can our hearts be purified? Well, again, we want to be a people who proclaim Christ. You know why that is? Because the only way that you can have a pure heart is if Jesus comes in and cleans it for you. That's it. You try to do it on your own, you're never going to do enough. Like, you could do everything right. you think, thinking, you know what, I've got all the right answers. I know the book, forward and backward. Like, I know the Bible. I know how it all works. I'm a pretty good guy. I'm nice to my coworkers. Like, I do all the right things. But if you don't know Jesus, you know what the Bible says? It says that you're a sinner who's destined for hell. I actually, okay, I'm going to tell a person, one more personal story, and then I'll get off the personal story for just a minute. Um, and I might get in trouble for this one. Y'all, just, uh, I think it might have been last night. Maybe the night, no, it was the night before. Um, I, I was being kind of goofy, and it, y'all know I love my wife. Um, uh, and I was singing, there's a Jesse McCartney song, like I Want You and Your Beautiful Soul. Anybody know that song? Nobody knows that song? Raise your hand if you know that song. Somebody sing it. No, I'm kidding. Um, I, yeah, everybody's hand was like, no, nope, not doing it. Uh uh-uh, uh, not today. Yeah, I Want You and Your Beautiful Soul. Y'all ever heard that song? All right. So I sang that to my wife the other night. I was like, I just started singing it. And she's, she's like, oh, you're so sweet. And she says, do you really think I have a beautiful soul? I said, do you, want, do you want like the canned answer or do you want the theological answer? And she says, give me the theological answer. I said, no, your heart is black and you're destined for hell. <laughs> An instantly romantic moment over. Um, yeah, that, that ended that. See, that's the truth though, isn't it? If we really look at what, what God's word says about what, is, what does my soul look like on my own? What does my heart look like on my own? It is black and it deserves hell. That's what the Bible teaches. We are sinners. Y'all, we don't deserve good things. We do not deserve God's grace. We do not deserve God's mercy. But you know what the great thing is? The great thing is God says, I'm going to love you anyway. Anyway. And then he gave his son to prove it. And his son died on the cross to take your place, to die for the the blackness in your heart, to die for your sin. And then on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And he says, you know what? You can have eternal life. You don't have to fear death. Death's sting can be gone for you. You know how you do that? It's by faith in Jesus, by trusting in Jesus. How can you have a beautiful soul? How can your heart be made clean? By the grace of God in Jesus that's right, Creed, I love that smile, buddy, yeah, yeah, there it is, uh-huh, Woo! he says, preach it, brother, uh-huh, yeah, that's the good news, yes, oh, I love it, oh, that's so awesome, I didn't, I, I couldn't have planned that any better, that's fantastic, you go on a rant about Jesus, and you got babies smiling everywhere, oh, man, I love that. But that's the truth, though. We need Jesus. How can your hearts be made clean? How can they they be purified by the blood of Jesus who died for you, by trusting in his sacrifice? That's how our hearts can be made clean. That's what we need. We need to proclaim Christ. To quote from Hebrews, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus, the source and the perfecter of our faith. So once your heart's been purified, then you protect your calendar. You purify your calendar. You make sure that you prioritize your time well. It's literally the only thing you can ever get more of. Like, they print new, new bills every day. You can get more money. You can never get more time. Some people are thinking, how do I get this money? Um, uh, you can't get any more time, though. Once your time's out, it's gone. There's no more of it. How are you going to use it? Are you going to use it wisely? Is it going to reflect that you really are devoted to your God? What will your calendar show about you? And finally, teach your kids and your grandkids who Jesus is and what he's done. Read your Bible in your home. Not just to yourself, like quietly in your corner. Read it to your kids. Read it to your grandkids. And what does the Bible say about, like, stapling it to your forehead? Like, I'm not actually telling you. Some of you are like, I don't even have a stapler. Um, no, don't do that. That would hurt. Point is, the point is, let it be seen everywhere. Let it be seen in your life. Use your home as the space for Worship. Let that be your story. Let that be something your kids know so they know the language of God's word. And just so you know, if it's not done intentionally, it's likely never going to happen, at least not regularly. So do it intentionally. Be intentional. Read your Bible to your kids. Tell them who Jesus is and what he's done for you. So plan times for your household to hear the language of God. Let me pray for y'all. Heavenly Father, God, I come to you today and I just... I'm thankful um, that you haven't, that you're not some distant God who we can't know. Um, but instead, you're the God who loves us and gave himself for us and continually pursues us. God, again and again, I know um, how faithless I can be. I know how many times I I forget and I try to walk away but your love pursues me. Um, So Lord, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that you didn't let me have what I asked for, but instead you love me and you gave something even greater. You gave Jesus. Um, So Lord, I want to just, I just want to say thank you today for who you are and the work that you've done. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful with the task you've given us of building up people. Um, So God, purify our hearts. Let us be faithful with our time and let us be faithful with our families. Um, Lord, And just I just pray that we would see people built up um, so that your word, so that we could continue to proclaim Christ and we could empower everybody, all people to become mature followers of Christ through the wisdom of the scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, let us do that. Father, we, we just pray that you would move through us and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.